with our sermon. We're going to be looking at Genesis, um, the passage is 126 through 217. And I'm going to, my job in the next four hours is to answer the question, why do I exist? Wouldn't it be great if there were lazy boys and you could just kind of sit and check, you know, hear this? Well, nevertheless, this is Genesis 1 through 26. This is the passage I'm going to be talking about. So hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, now keep in mind, God is creating creation here day after day. And he's gotten to that last day where he's creating man, the sixth day, excuse me. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of the life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds from the entire land of Havlah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The word of the Lord. It was 1464 when the giant marble slab was brought to Florence, Italy. It had been purchased in Tuscany. The cathedral, the great cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore was being built. And the great slab had been purchased with the eye of creating several statues that would adorn the walls of the cathedral. The noted sculptor Agostino was retained to create the statues and work began on this great marble slab. Well, there were preliminary carvings done, but inexplicably, after only two years, no other work had commenced and Agostino's contract was canceled. Three years later, another noted sculptor was brought in to continue the work. 
And some preliminary work was done on this giant slab, now to be one statue. The legs began to be roughed out. And yet, inexplicably, again, no work continued, and his contract was canceled as well. Now, 35 years later, cathedral inventories showed a giant stone marble slab laying down in the grass, slowly dissolving in the elements. City officials, alarmed at the loss of their great investment, had this giant slab hauled up on one side. They nicknamed it the Beast and paraded sculptors in front of it to see who could do anything with this giant marble slab. Even the great Leonardo da Vinci came and walked by this giant slab to see if there was something that he could do. But there were no takers. But there was a young man, a 26-year-old untried sculptor called Michelangelo, that looked at this giant slab and saw something that no one else could, a figure that was trapped in the stone. And Michelangelo was captivated by the stone so much that he begged to have the commission which he was given. And for the next three years, he cut and polished and chiseled and brought forth what we now know as the David. With a little manipulation for the modesty of people. The David is the most famous statue that anyone has ever seen. Millions flock to the Academy of Art in Florence to see this statue, the great David, which stands 17 feet from base to top. They say that he is so lifelike that it's almost like looking at a living image. What was it that caused Michelangelo to see something that no one else could? And Michelangelo simply said this, when I saw the stone, I saw the angel trapped in it, and I carved until I set it free. I love this story. You know, Michelangelo, he had a purpose in mind when he carved that stone, when he brought it to life, if you will. And 400 years later, 600 years later, that stone still speaks, even though Michelangelo is long gone. I love this story because I think it's so much between, of the story with us and God. God had a purpose when he brought us forth, an image in his mind when he created us from the dust of the earth. The question that we have to ask today is, what is it? What is the purpose why we exist? It's a question that goes to the core of our existence, isn't it? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do with my life? I remember as a 17-year-old getting up on the roof of my parents' house and looking out at the sky and asking this question, God, why am I here? What am I supposed to be? Why am I here and not hearing an answer? The truth of the matter is, my friends, it's the most important question. It's always running in the back of our mind. Why am I? Without knowing this, all of life is futile. I mean, it would kind of be like getting into a car and beginning to go on a journey, but you had no idea where you were going, and you had no idea what road to take or what the map was. You'd simply drive around, wouldn't you? Aimlessly, never getting to your destination. See, we must answer this question, who am I? Why do I exist? Or we will be driven to two things. The first, distraction. Have you ever noticed the new proliferation of all these new media devices that are out there? iPods, cell phones, texting, 300 channels available out there. You can watch a movie anytime you want. You know, I could rearrange my life so I never had to take one second of my life to think about anything, being endlessly entertained. Why? 
because I don't have an answer to the question, why do I exist? And so we have humanity driven to distraction. But the second thing, if not driven to distraction, will be driven to desperation. I remember as a young kid going with my family to the amusement park, walking alongside with them. It was a busy day. You know, when you're a kid, everybody looks like they're a giant. And I don't know how it happened, but in a split second, I looked around, and my parents were gone. And I couldn't find them. And all of a sudden, all of my bearings were disoriented. I was without connection. I was lost. Must have not been for five or ten seconds until I found my parents again, but I can remember it as vividly as it was yesterday. See, if we don't know where we are and where we're supposed to go, we're lost, and this question will drive us to desperation. But how would life be if we did know the answer to this question? How would things be different if we knew the answer to the question, why do I exist? Would there be more peace in our life, more calmness, more living out of who we are than desperately trying to reach out and find it out there? Would there be more purpose in our life, more steadfastness? You know, when you woke up in the morning and your feet hit the floor, you would have that sense of, yes, I know where I'm going. I know my ultimate direction. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I think so. I think so. And the reality is, my friends, that we can know the reason why we exist. In fact, that's why Church of the Redeemer exists, to answer this question. That's why we're doing this six questions I must answer before I die. Because where else can we go to get the answers to these questions? If the church can't answer the question, then why have the church at all? But we can know. And the reason we can know why we exist is because God tells us. And he tells us right here. And I'm going to unpack this passage for you, but I'm going to give you the cliff notes real quick. I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you, and then I'm going to tell you. Here's the answer to why you and I exist. We were made in God's image to rule God's kingdom, to spread God's glory. We were made in God's image to rule God's kingdom, to spread God's glory. See, there's only three things you need to know to know the answer to why I exist. Number one, who am I? Number two, what's my job? And number three, what's this world that we live in? And I'm going to tackle each one of those in the next three and a half hours. Number one, who am I? We read through this creation account here in Genesis 1. I mean, this is the opening of the book. You've got to read the beginning of the story, don't you? And we see God creating. Days 1 through 4, he's creating the light. And then he creates the sky. And then he creates the land. And then he creates the day and night. All of the elements, if you will, that are necessary to bring forth life. And then in days five and six, he starts to create creation, the animals. First the aquatic life, and then birds, and then creatures. And then he gets to the final thing that he's going to create, the last. And this is what he says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Notice the word that keeps popping up, don't you? Image. Let us create man in our image, in our likeness. Now, those two words in Hebrew are used interchangeably, so he's basically saying at the same time. Image, image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Hebrew doesn't have exclamation points. So if you really want to stress something, you say it again and again and again. 
God is showing the distinctness that man has from anything else in all of creation. And we see that this is the ultimate part of creation. This is the apex of creation. It's the last thing that God does. It's the final act, creating man and woman in the image of God. Notice that. It's not man in the image of God, and it's not woman. It's man and woman. It's humanity. And finally, we see this phrase that God created everything else. Every day when he's starting to create, he looks back upon his creation. What does he say? It is good. He saw that it was good. But when he creates man and he finishes it off, what does he say? It was very good. Well, what does this mean to be created in the image of God? The actual literal rendering in the Hebrew would be more like this. We, are to be created, we were created into the image of God. If I was to take a lump of clay here and I put it on the potter's wheel and I'd start spinning it and let's say I wanted to create a vase and I'd start working this vase and shaping this vase out of this clay, I would have created at the end this clay into a vase. Now what part of that uh, creation is the vase? The outside? No, all of it's vase. In fact, there's no part of this, if I look on the inside of look at every square inch of that, that is not vase. In the same way, God created us into the image of God. God isn't just speaking about appearance, about externals. In fact, God is a spirit. So when God refers to himself anthropomorphically in the scripture, he's really doing it by analogy because otherwise we couldn't understand him. No, he's talking about the characteristics and the qualities and the traits of God being molded into man. Righteousness, holiness, goodness, justice, the wisdom of God being put through and through into man and into woman. And when I'm saying man, I'm meaning mankind, man and woman. This wasn't a superficial rendering. This was the image of God through and through. So much so that when creation walked by man, they must have done a double take because it was like looking at God, a micro-God, if you will. Now, when the Israelites heard this, keep in mind Moses reveals this to them in the desert. He comes down and he writes the Torah and he gives this to the Israelites who have been in captivity in Egypt for over 400 years. They must have been ultimately floored by this concept. Because in Egypt, there was only one who was the image of God, Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the image of God. In fact, the name Tutankhamun, many of us know the most famous Pharaoh, Tutankhamun means the living image of the god Amun. It was Pharaoh who was image, the image of God. And everyone else, there was this class system. So the nobles were next. They weren't divine images, but they were sort of in the pantheon. And then there were the merchants. And then at the bottom of the pool, who were there? The slaves, the Israelites. What were they? They were expendable. But we see here in this scripture that no, every single person, rich and poor, young and old, male and female, created into the image of God. You know, what would be life be like if that was true? The same problems back then are the problems now. Aren't the problems with our world the fact that we don't see each other or ourselves in the way that we ought? See, all of us, we have a little ID card that we carry around. It's a little identification card. It's who we are. You know, you meet up with someone and invariably after a while the, con the question comes up, what do you do? And we get to show who we do. 
show what we do to those other people. Because the system of value is based on what you have and what you do. So what's on your card? Maybe you uh, have beauty and you're, you're handsome and you're healthy and you're fit. Well, let's go ahead and that's, scribble that down on the card. Maybe you have a good position in your company or you're self-employed and, and you have possessions, you have a beautiful house, and so we've got to go ahead and we've got to write those things down as well and sort of add up all of the value, the sum of a value of a person. But there's always that flip side of the card, isn't there? The card we don't want to show anybody. Well, maybe you're not beautiful. Maybe you're kind of plain. Well, I don't want to show anybody that. Maybe your job is mundane. Maybe you don't have a job. Well, there's another strike against you, isn't there? Maybe you don't have the gifts and abilities of those people out there that you look at. Well, I must be an inferior class citizen. I must be an Israelite. But God teaches us the truth here, that the value is not from what we do, but rather the value is from how God made us into his image through and through. See, in order to start living according to who we are, we must first choose to see ourselves arightly. God creating us in his image gives us dignity. Every single person on the face of this earth has dignity because we are made in the image of God. But we must not also choose to exalt ourselves because at the end of the day, we are just images, aren't we? Not the true McCoy. You know, back in that day, if you wanted to have something valuable, an image created, you would make it out of gold or silver or precious stones. But how was mankind made? From the dust of the earth, molded and shaped by the one who created it, God himself. What would your life look like if you started to see yourself as you really were? If you went ahead and decided to change what was on this card? Stop trying to climb the social ladder. Add more things to your card. Step on someone to get above or see yourself as below. What if we started really seeing ourselves as fearfully and wonderfully made? I think there'd be a lot less stretching and straining in our lives. More peace. Less feelings of inadequacy. More satisfaction. Less taking and more giving. See, God calls us to see ourselves as who we are and to see other people, to recognize their inherent worth, that you and I are made in the image of God. Seeing ourselves rightly is the first step to understanding why we exist. We were made in God's image to rule over God's kingdom in order to spread God's glory. Well, now that we know who we are, we've got to ask this next question, what's my job? Who here hasn't applied for a job? Well, you know, there are two critical things you need to know when applying for a job. The first is the job description. Okay, and if the company's done a good job of filling out a very clear job description, you'll know exactly what this person is to do. But you've got to bring something, don't you, when you come to that job interview. You've got to bring your resume. Your resume lists your qualifications your experience. Are you truly qualified to do this job that you're supposed to be doing? And if the job description and the resume match up really nicely, you've got a good opportunity to get that job, don't you? Wouldn't it be great if we came, each of us, with a job description? Just right out of the womb, you know? You come out of the womb, and then the papers come out right with you. 
Wouldn't that be great? Remember the Cabbage Patch Kids, you know? The Cabbage Patch Kid comes out and it's got a little tag on it. We know exactly what this Cabbage Patch Kid is supposed to do. Wouldn't that be great if life was like that? Well, life doesn't go exactly that way. But this passage here reveals to us our job description. See, it does it in two ways. The first is our design reveals our purpose. You know, I love this picture with Michelangelo. It's very interesting. You know, you see this fantastic sculpture here of Michelangelo and how magnificent he is. But the reality is he's not looked at the way he's supposed to be looked at. See, Michelangelo had a specific scene in mind when he created the David. And he's not meant to be looked at squarely from the front. He's meant to be looked at from the side. In fact, do you see how he's looking off at something right now? There's only one problem. You can't. If you go to the Academy of Art in Florence, you walk through this large hallway, and he's in this sort of cupola right here. And so to look at him the way he's supposed to be looked at, you would need to stand over here, but you can't get far enough back because the wall is there. How would he look like? In, uh, it was about five years ago, Stanford University did this thing called the Digital Michelangelo Project. And they took cameras and they scanned a 360 degree view of Michelangelo. So they were able to look at him from any angle. This is the way Michelangelo wanted David to see, David to be seen. Totally different picture. You see, in the other one, he's very relaxed, isn't he? He's, he's got a towel. He's heading to the beach. Granted, a nude beach, but he's heading to the beach. But in this one, we see a total different picture. His, his face is furrowed. His nostrils are flared. His eyes are concentrated. His arm is flexed. You see, Michelangelo uh, made the David. He wanted to capture that picture right before he was about to sling the stone against Goliath. And sort of right in that picture where it's Goliath there and Michelangelo is right there. And he wanted to communicate all of that picture that David was looking at him with such confidence saying, in just a second I'm going to sling the stone and I'm going to hit you in the head and then I'm going to cut off your head. Total different picture. What is the picture that God has created for us? Design reveals purpose. Why were we made in the image of the king? Because we were made to rule over God's kingdom. Man was designed to rule, man and woman. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and every living creature that moves along the ground. In fact, the way God recites it, he's basically playing the tape back on everything he created in order. God gives this five-fold command. Be fruitful. Increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. And rule over it. It can be summed up in two words. Dominion and multiplication. First, let's talk about dominion. God is saying, spread images of yourself throughout the land. See, when a king took power in the ancient Near East... What he would do, keep in mind, these were vast kingdoms, and this, kingdom, this king would take power. And there was no email, there was no cell phone. How was he to communicate to everyone who was in charge? He would have these giant images of himself made, giant stone statues, and he would place them throughout the land 
so that the subjects could go and they could see this image and they would know without a doubt he's the one in charge. In fact, if you went to uh, the Eastern Bloc, if you went to Eastern Europe, say in the 1970s during the Cold War, and you went to Poland, you would find in the town square in many places giant statues of Russian soldiers because the Soviet Union wanted to communicate, we are the ones who are in charge. But God does something even more special than that. He doesn't create stone images. He creates living images and tells them to go throughout the earth to communicate to creation that there is a God who reigns. He created you and me living images to rule over creation. And yet we must understand that we rule in the place of God, that we were not the kings, we ruled for the king. So the technical term to describe us would be we were regents. We were made to be regents, ruling for the great king. And so God empowered us to manage the world. We were the ones who would be able to control the ecosystem, to control the oceans, to control the food supply in the Serengeti, to literally take control and manage the earth on behalf of God, endowed with godlike characteristics. We see here, and just even in the story where God parades the animals in front of Adam, and Adam names them one by one by one by one. Now, there are over 100,000 species of animals out there. And if you include the insects, you're in the millions. And yet Adam was able to do it one by one by one. Why? Because he was made in the image of God. It's a great movie. I don't know if you remember it. Bruce Almighty. Remember Bruce Almighty played by Jim Carrey? He got frustrated because he didn't feel like God was running the world the way he should. And so he said, well, if, if you gave me the power, I'd run this world just as good. And so God gave him the power. And I don't know if you remember Bruce Almighty sitting in front of his computer to answer all of the email problems of the world. And he starts typing, and he starts typing, and he's drinking coffee, and he's just working it. You know, millions of prayer requests, just going on through. And he gets through, and he realizes that they just keep coming. And so what does Bruce Almighty do? He just goes, yes. Yes to everything, and then he walks away. See, Bruce Almighty, God gave him, in that thing, Morgan Freeman gave him the skill of God, but he didn't make him in the image of God because he didn't have the heart of God, the mind of God. He only had the skill of God. But God was made man in such a way that he would be able to manage the world itself. Think of that power and responsibility. But God also gave us this point to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. You ever wonder what this earth is? What is this place anyways? Why are we here? It's a great show. I don't know. Liel and I got hooked on it. We don't watch a lot of TV, but we got hooked on this one. Lost. Remember Lost, that show that ended last year? These, these guys are on a flight. The flight goes down and they get stranded on this desert island somewhere. And they're in this island. They start to discover there's something very strange about this island. It has a characteristic to it. It's like it's living. And they could never quite get their hands around the island. And so they were lost. They were not only lost geographically, they were lost cognitively. That's how we are with life. We're kind of lost. What is this earth? Well, God says in the beginning that God created a garden. 
this garden. We don't exactly know the size of it, but it was, it was big. It, it had life, all of the life, and it had boundaries around it. And we see that God's presence is here in the garden, that God is walking throughout the garden, and he communes with man, and everybody knows who's in charge there. But the garden doesn't cover the earth, does it? It's only a limited amount of place. What is this garden? We wouldn't know the answer to that unless we fast forward. Because we see in 1 Kings when God calls upon David to design a temple, a place where he will dwell, a place where his glory will dwell, and he gives them the instructions, and David builds this temple, the place where God will be worshipped. If you were to walk in that, it's very interesting. The design, he, de he demands that in the walls, the carving of the paneling, there'll be palm trees and pomegranates and pineapples. And in the tapestry, there will be birds and cherubim, angelic beings put in there. There's even a giant uh, basin that's filled with 18,000 gallons of water. It's called the Bronze Sea. And when the temple is all done, and if you were to walk in that temple, you know what it would look like? It would look like a garden. What is this world? It's the original temple of God. The earth was designed to be the temple of God. So man was designed to be a king and a priest. And God gave man this responsibility to spread the garden, spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Oh, some of you were alive at the time. I'm kind of a young fellow, but you'll remember the space race in the 1960s when uh, President Kennedy said, we need to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And there was this giant space race between the Soviets and the United States of America. It was documented in a movie called The Right Stuff. I don't know if you saw the movie The Right Stuff. And there's this frantic going back and forth, putting up Sputnik and putting up, you know, circling the world. And finally... Apollo 11 took off and went all the way to the moon. Some of you may remember it. Commander Neil Armstrong stepping down and jumping and saying, one stop, small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And what did he then do? He took a flag and he put it down in the ground and said, guess what? The United States has come. See, that's what God is calling to do to man to take my image, to take my glory, to spread it to the four corners of the earth. And that call is for us today as well. There's only one problem. We can't. Something is wrong. Something has gone wrong with us. We were meant to manage the earth, but we can't even manage our own lives. We were meant to be the image of God. And yet we're cruel and we're short with our children. And we fight and we bicker with one another. We were meant to fill the earth and proclaim the glory of God. But isn't what mankind does a testament to the glory of man? Something's gone wrong. Creation has gone amok. We've gone amok. The only way I can put it is like this. I used to have this car. Four-door Ford Contour. It's a great car. Got me from place to place to place to place. Well, one day I was driving on 264, not paying attention, looking around, all whatever, and they, a car stopped right in front of me, and I saw too late, and I smashed, put on the brakes, and just slid right into it, and just, boom, crumpled the whole front of it. 
The car was this close to being totaled, but it wasn't, according to the insurance company. <laughs> See, my car, if you looked at it from the side, it had been crushed, it had been deformed. Was it a Ford Contour still? Absolutely. But it was twisted, and it was dysfunctional. See, that's a picture of us. Because God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you would surely die. And isn't that what's happened to us? Maybe not physically, but spiritually. We are descendants of Adam and Eve, every single one of us. We're in the exact same boat. Is there any hope for mankind? This beautiful picture that I've painted of who we are and what we're supposed to do, is there any hope at all? Was there any hope for my Ford? Well, the answer was yes, but I couldn't fix it. So where did I take it? Took it to the Ford dealership, the master mechanic, because they designed it in the first place, and they know how to put it back together. And six weeks later, outrolled my Ford Contour. So to whom must we go to be repaired, restored into the image of God? We must go to the one who made us. 2,000 years ago, God sent a repairman. God became a man, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. You see, Jesus is the original image. Whenever you're going to paint something or sculpt something, what do you do? You need a model, don't you? So you get a model to stand there so you can shape that image. If you want to know what you and I were meant to look like and be like, there's only one place we need to go. Look at Jesus, the archetype of the image of God. And so God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is in the person of Jesus Christ that we can be restored into the ones that God made us to be. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For since death came through a man... He's speaking here of Adam. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all who believe in him will be made alive. Isn't it interesting that man was created on the sixth day and Christ was crucified on the sixth day? A chance for a new humanity. The master sculptor has arrived. He has the power to unwreck you and me. He has the power to rebirth you and me. We're like that stone lying face down in the cathedral yard with no one who has the ability to restore us. But God says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. The time is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I want to encourage you today, and we're going to be talking. You know, it's hard when I only get one shot, but in the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about these core issues. Who are you giving your life to, to unwreck you? If you're a seeker here today, this is all new to you. If you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, he has the power to shape you into the person you were meant to be. Maybe you have already given your life to Christ, but you feel like you're stalled. You feel like... Where's, where's the improvement? It's still the same problems, the same issues. Remember that God transforms us from the inside out, and he's not finished with you. So maybe whatever it is that you feel stuck, maybe the best thing you can do is give it to God and say, God, change this. Polish it, 
shape it because I can't do anything with it. Why do we exist? We were made in God's image to rule over God's kingdom, to spread God's glory. By God's grace, let us do so. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you haven't left us on this road with no destination or with no map. Lord, you've called us. You've made us in your image. You've given us dignity because we are in your image. And you've given us a task to rule over the earth, to spread images of your glory. And you've re, you are restoring us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to take your image to where we work, to the schools where we're at, to the places where we live, and to proclaim once again that God reigns. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you the opportunity to respond as we go into our time of